Welcome to Music Sense. I'm your host, Richard Vachon, and my guest today is Carlos Foggin. Carlos has been uh, studying music. And he had been uh, at the University of Lethbridge. He had piano, private piano study with uh, Professor Glenn Mon Montgomery. Then he went uh, to University of Calgary, completed his, his baccalaureate music with distinction, with uh, uh, specialty with pipe organ and conducting. And he got lately, uh, and uh, in in the organ industry, in the organ, he got. He went to the Royal Canadian College of Organists, and he got the 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 qualification of colleague in two thousand eight, of associate in two thousand thirteen, and of a fellow in 2016, being the 100th one to receive that uh, highest distinction. So that's a great number. <laughs> it just worked out, didn't it? <laughs> and uh, in 2016, uh, he founded the Rocky Mountain Symphony Orchestra, and, uh, whose goal is to uh, share live orchestra music with as many Albertans as possible. Uh, you have performed uh, to more than 30,000 of Albertans. Yeah, it's more than the, I think the, I think the bio's updated, I think we're about 40,000 now. 40,000 now to over 50 communities. Uh, you're a celebrated pianist, organist, and improviser. You performed internationally on some of the world's finest organs. Uh, Notre Dame de Paris, Corner Dome, Westminster Abbey. Yeah. I only go for the big ones, Father. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, <laughs> And uh, I mean that you're, you're, uh, you founded this orchestra, Rocky Mountain uh, Orchestra, uh, instead of uh, starting your master degree. That's correct. I, I was accepted at, at two schools, both, both uh, well, one in, one in Montreal and one in Toronto. And uh, both of them um, had doctoral students stay on to do doctor or master students stay on for doctoral work and uh that mean that meant that my orchestra was no longer available and i couldn't uh do my master's program so i had to wait two or three years to get in so i just figured i'd start my own instead there you go and uh, you said that for the same money you would get 10 times the contacts and 100 times the experience yeah, that's right yeah <laughs> so, so I, I why not i just figured the money I'd put into my, uh, I would have put into living expenses and travel and tuition. I could put into learning things through the school of hard knocks and actually get something done. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, you're, um, 
you know, contrary to stereotypes, uh, the country, you know, little towns, if I can say, of, of Alberta, where you gave all these concerts, uh, are interested in classical music, and the concerts were sold out, which means that classical music is still very alive and healthy. And, uh, but uh, your greatest care is music, of course. Uh, and uh, and your musician and your musicians, you're not just a dude with a stick. Just a dude with a stick. You know, you've been doing the research, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Carlos, Carlos, uh, my uh, starting question, if I can say that looks, if I can say as if I don't have researched my guest, uh, you know, uh, but it's it's my niche question of my of my podcast. Uh, it is uh, how did music influence your life? Uh, how uh, did you get interested with music? How did you get uh, passionate with music? What are the turning points of your life uh, according to music? When's when's the first when's the first time you touched these that that keyboard? <laughs> well, we we always had a piano in the house. My mother played, and ah, your your mother played. Yeah, my my grandmother was a, a very accomplished musician, and so it was very important to my mother that we have a piano in the house. And it wasn't it wasn't a great instrument, but it was an instrument. Um, I grew up on a, a small farm, in a small house in a remote part of the country, a beautiful part of the country, but but quite remote. And uh, I was kind of a, a had a bit of a personality as a child. Let's just say that. And uh, the only way I would be quiet or the only time I would, I guess, stop fussing uh, during church was when the when the music was playing and when we were singing or when the organ was playing or et cetera. So from the, about the age of two, my mother thought I would probably be interested in something like that. Um, so I, I played a bit, but she didn't want to get me started too early. She thought it was important to have a childhood. And so I didn't start the piano until I was six, going into grade one. Okay. Um, but uh that that's when I started with a local teacher. Um, I studied with her for a couple of years until she decided that it was probably best if I went elsewhere um, so that I could learn from someone else. Um, so we, the local university, well, Lethbridge is about an hour and 15 minutes away. So local as it gets. That university had a conservatory program where students from the community could be paired with, a, with an instructor. Um, and it just so happened that one of the senior instructors, one of the professors in the university um, was interested in taking on a young pupil, maybe eight, nine years old, who showed some promise and opened up a spot in his very busy. And uh, Yes, I, I did notice, I did notice that you, I did notice that you started with the Glenn Montgomery in uh, 88 and you're born in 81. Yeah, so I started. So uh, I, I, I thought, well, uh, is there a mistake there? What? 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 <laughs> I think I started with Glenn in '89, fall of '89. So there might have been a typo in a bio somewhere. But yeah, I was I was eight years old when I started with Glenn, and wow. I started for, for ten years. We, wow, wow, it's one. It's 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 one of the the point that I see uh, in common, if I can say, in all those that are uh, interested by uh, classical music. Uh, that they have been exposed when they were young. Yes, I, I, I think it helps. 
um, a lot of the music that I'm interested in now, I did I wasn't exposed to until until later. Um, in fact, like orchestral music, I I never saw an orchestra until my twenties. Um, the local Lethbridge had an orchestra, but I didn't even know it existed. Um, we lived in kind of a in an area where it was a bit of a basin geographically, so we didn't get any FM radio stations. So oh. I so we couldn't even get CBC radio too to to get classical music. I mean, that's that's really the only way in Canada to get classical music um, on the radio. And because it was an FM station, it didn't didn't get to us. So I grew up listening to country radio on the AM stations in the tractor while I was doing my chores. So it was classical piano and uh, late night call-in shows on country music radio. <laughs> that, that, those were my influences. Well, thank God for your parents and your grandparents in that case to have introduced you to uh, classical music. Um, how was this uh, Glenn Montgomery? I didn't have much. Uh, the, the, I was I was trying to search if I could see some. Uh, uh, I didn't have much time for it to to search him thoroughly. Could you describe uh, a little bit if I could see his uh, his uh, teaching? Glenn is, uh, he's Glenn is a very interesting, uh, not just just teacher but a person. Um, he is really. I mean, when you when you think of a Renaissance man that has his fingers in everything, um, he can talk as as easily about um, the latest advances in astrophysics as he can about um, the string quartets of Haydn or the nuances of the French mother sauces. Um, he's he he dabbles in in many things and and um, tries to make himself an expert in as many as he can. And uh, I guess that rubbed off. Um, it's important, it was important for him that students of his not only studied music, but worked in chamber groups, um, that they read literature. So I was always being asked what books I was reading. Um, he would okay. recommend books. Um, so we went through like the top 100 books. I probably read 50 of those at his urging during my piano lessons. Um, we were encouraged to go to art galleries to to look at sculpture to and and investigate the time periods and the other art that would have been um, around the time of what we were we were doing. For example, if I was if I was playing uh, uh, works by Brahms, late Brahms, so the, like the Opus One Nineteen uh, pieces, late eighteen hundreds, in the same time that Mahler, uh, Gustav Klimt, um, so that kind of Fantasiach in in Vienna. So researching what was happening in that time in the political times, that was important. That was as important to the music lesson as was what was on the printed page. Absolutely, to be able to give it the right interpretation, to understand the composer and to understand the, the, the time and the, right. its personality and, uh, right. and to try to, to, uh, to, to give it the right feeling. Right. I mean, it's, it's important when, re when you're reading sacred scripture too, that you're, you're, if you're reading the book of Isaiah, I mean, it's important to, to take those things through the traditions and the eyes of of the of the Jews at that time, not not through our modern lens. So it's it's important in all things in life to to kind of judge things from their time period and what they would have known. You remember some of the piece in particular that uh, your mother or grandmother were playing that uh, that struck your attention? Oh, nothing in particular. Um, we we there was always church music, gospel music being played. Um, they, my, 
my mother and my grandmother weren't classical pianists. They were, they, they played for their own enjoyment and played in church a lot. Um, so we had a lot of that in the house. Um, what my, was my there? Mother, what was their favorite part uh, pieces? Uh, you know, my, I, I guess in terms of, of pop music, what was popular at the time? I'm, uh, music of the sixties and seventies. There's my, my mom was a fantastic singer. So by the time I was about seven, uh, she decided that I was going to be her live-in accompanist and she had me hostage for the next 11 years anyway. So she would sing weddings and not necessarily her, I guess we would, we would get uh, roped into singing at these things um, in small communities. Sometimes the mother son duo is, is about the easiest thing to get and the only thing to get. So I spent a lot of time, I had a little electric keyboard that I would program drum tracks on and we would play uh, pop music I remember one time at a cousin's wedding, uh, we did some Whitney Houston, some Dolly Parton. So all over the board. I mean, my classical training just allowed me to do other things as well. So I, I guess my mother's big influence. I mean, she loved the music of Barbra Streisand. So I think okay. we had music on LP and CD and and she was always singing something like that too. Yes, Barbra Streisand is a great singer, yes. Uh, do you remember uh, some of the first pieces that you played with... Um uh glenn with glenn yes oh what was your first challenge given by glenn i believe so i would have been playing for what two years now we oh i guess the big challenge was the uh the notenbuchen the notebook for anna magdalena by j.s Bach. Bach. okay so Bach's first wife died and so he married uh a young soprano in his church choir, um, bad example for all organists. And so she was very much younger than he was and she was an excellent singer, but she couldn't play very well. And so he wrote this book for her of, of pieces that at the time were what you would play to, to start music. Well, and these are the pieces that I did start when I, when I had exactly yes the 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 major yeah, the, minuet and the minor one the minuets yeah. the G minor the polonaise the bourrée the marches so I remember about a two month boot camp going through the Anna Magdalena notebook which if I gave my students would probably be six months to a year and I think he just insisted that I just have that down in in, in two, two months weeks. yeah <laughs> wow and I think that was my audition if I could handle that then then we were ready to do things okay okay um and then the uh uh is there any challenge that you got if i can say when you were uh, studying under him what 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 uh, uh the most most difficult i i suppose was um i i was 10, 11, 12 years at the time. And we would have master classes every other week. Um, so we'd bring in guests or other teachers or himself, but it was his entire studio. Um, and as a young, most young people at 10 or 11 years of age, that's not something their teacher's doing um, with their private studios. But because he was a full tenured professor, these were the, um, these were 18 to 30 year olds working on their baccalaureate or their master's degrees in this class. And so I had that challenge of sitting in those classes, performing with for them as a as a colleague or a peer um, and and being um, taught the same way with them. 
Wow. Um, the advantage was that I, I got to meet the string players and the cello players um, through the through the university program as well. I got to play chamber music with these great players who were sometimes twice my age and had three times the life experience, but they needed young pianists. And so I got trialed by fire, but it was an amazing experience because like it or not, that's how you learn is by doing. Did you play chamber music with these people? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the first piano trio I played was the Schubert B flat. Um, and I mean, we worked through lots of stuff. So um, the Trout Quintet. Uh, oh, you did the Trout Quintet. Trout Quintet, the Schubert. You, yeah, you were, you were the piano for the Trout Quintet? I was 14. Um, wow. I played it better then than I do now because I worked on it so hard. Um, there's only one really hard movement. The rest is kind of clunky, clunky. Um, but those, those variations <laughs> are amazing. Um, what else did we play? The, the Mendelssohn F minor, um, but uh, I mean, the Brahms B major, where the, the piano starts and the cello comes in and then the violinist comes in later. That's just a, a great piece. Um, I, I was probably 17 when I played that, but coming full circle, Glenn, he now lives in, in Charlottetown, PEI, and he just played just this past weekend, uh, the Brahms B major trio with a, with a group out there, one of the, the professors at the university. So he was, it's kind of, kind of funny that it's come full circle and he's now playing the B major when he's, oh, Glenn would be mid sixties now. He's still performing. Oh yeah. He's very active as a performer. He, uh, there's the festival Perry sound in Ontario, the festival run by James Campbell and Glenn has been, uh, they only invite guests. They don't have permanent, permanent, uh, permanent uh, artists that come every year but glenn would be a, as close as a permanent artist as you get he's he's never missed in like 30 years um james campbell um the the canada's greatest wind player preeminent clarinetist um he was the professor of clarinet at indiana jacobs university he was was from toronto and glenn grew up in toronto and when jim was 18 and the principal clarinet of the toronto u symphony glenn was 12 or 13 and sitting in the clarinet section. And Glenn's first instrument was clarinet, not piano. Um, okay. And so Jim would let Glenn play the principal solos once in a while in the orchestra. And so they became great friends. And now Jim's got this festival and Glenn performs at it every year. So it's it's great interconnectivity that that is the music world that's wonderful. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. Um, when did you enter this uh, famous uh, uh, Royal Canadian College of Organist. Ah, uh, the RCCO. That is, it was started in 1909. It's Canada's oldest musicians organization or union or club. Um, it wasn't originally Royal. It gained that later. Um, I started with them, I guess it became a member in 2008 when I uh, passed the requirements to become a colleague. Um, Prior to that, I really didn't play much organ. Um, I was a pianist primarily. I played a little bit of organ just to make it work in church. And a job was, I saw a job advertisement for, a, for an organist position here in Calgary at uh, one of the bigger Anglican churches, uh, Oxford, so high church. And uh, mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I, I, I could do that. Why not? <laughs> I have no idea. And uh, so I'd been taking a couple organ lessons for a little bit, but I just thought I was going to do this. And so I, I got the job miraculously. I don't, I don't know. I guess the director of music must've thought it was a joke. And 
So, but the best part was I got organ lessons out of the deal. So I guess it was 2000, 2006 when I started there. Um, and I worked with her and the um, head of organ, the organ department at the university here for two years and then became a colleague in 2008. Okay. Which is when I left that church and became the organist at Immaculate Heart of Mary in Bridgeland with the Society of St. Pius X. Yes, uh, you uh, you uh, you moved from uh, from there to uh, St. Denis Church uh, with this famous organ. Uh, that uh... <laughs> Well, at that time, it was a very, very different. It was a little itty-bitty reclaimed theater in Bridgeland with a, with a little two-manual digital that uh, had seen better days. But uh, in 2012, uh, the church moved up the hill to the large cathedral-style church there with the big organ. So that's when that's when the big organ came out. Yes. Uh, I look, if I can say, at the uh, the um, uh, succession. How could I say the uh, uh, the? Um, Almost like a lineage. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, the lineage. Yes, of uh, of uh, Glenn Montgomery. Yeah. Uh, he likes. He likes. Yeah, he likes he likes to he likes to uh, to he likes to say that he's coming from Guido Agusti, from Ferruccio Buzzini, from Franz Liszt, Karl Czerny, Beethoven, and Haydn. Uh, do you have something similar with organ? Uh, with organ, I do somewhere. Um, is there the lineage with the, the, the organ? So mine... Are you coming from Bach? Uh, uh, I don't think so, okay. perhaps. Um, mine goes through uh, my teacher, Neil Coburn, studied with Dame Gillian Weir, the, the, the British organist, who studied with Ralph Downs, uh, who started with Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan. And... Okay. Then John Goss was the organist from there, Thomas Atwood. So it's very British, um, but Thomas Atwood studied with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Okay, wow. So my organ, my organist, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure we could look further and see who Mozart studied with and go from there. But that's, I mean, once you've hit Mozart or Beethoven, I think you, you stop looking. <laughs> well, yes, that's good enough, I think, yeah. Uh, as an organist, uh what was your your your, uh, your first uh, piece your first challenge oh i don't think i played it well but everyone wants to play the the 565 toccata by bach the the famous prelude, prelude or toccata and fugue in d minor um the, toc the toccata and fugue the, the, i played it poorly of course but i think the first the, my first big big challenge i suppose i was I think 14 and not really an organist. We had a small organ in our church and it was a very small rural church. So it was almost like a home organ, you know, like the, the split keyboards, but they don't line up. Like you would have beats and rhythms on it. You could do the Foxtrot on the organ. And we had one of those in the chapel. And so I kind of played that. And then we had a larger church, maybe 30 minutes away where for larger uh, larger conferences or things I would I would play that larger organ so I maybe had I don't know 10 or 20 hours 
of experience on, a, on an organ with a pedal board. And we were singing a Messiah uh, where all the small towns came together and, and put all the, all, the, uh, all the singers together. So it was a big choir, maybe 200, 250 people with a, wow. with a small orchestra and an organist. Um, and the organist was from the local Catholic parish, uh, accomplished player. And uh, about 10 days before the concert was to go ahead, he was in a car accident and broke his leg uh -oh. in the hospital and he couldn't play. Um, uh -oh. So they asked around, does anybody play the organ? And I was 14 and stupid. And so I said, well, kind of, I guess. If, if no one else here thinks they can, I could probably try it. And so I had 10 days to learn to play the Messiah, not the whole thing, but bits and pieces, probably an hour 45 of the Messiah on the organ at age 14. So wow. that was trial by fire. So oh, la, la. I guess that's my, first, my first challenge was to play Handel's Messiah on, on the organ at 14. Just being a cocky kid, I really didn't have the skills, but I managed to pull it off. And people still talk about that 26 years later. I, I believe so. I believe so. Uh, now, what, what, is, what would be your favorite piece now on the organ? Oh, there's so many. I mean, it just depends on the season, I guess. But uh, um, wait, wait a minute. Uh, the, 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 what is the piece that you played on the organ of Notre Dame, for example? On the organ in Notre Dame, I, played, uh, I, I played work by Pierre Coucherot. Um, French, French pieces. Yeah, the, uh, he has the famous improvisations on uh, Today in La Ramus, um, where, the, where the choir sings one line and then the organ replies. Um, so I played some of those. I played his, uh, because it was written for that organ, I played um, the improvisation on Victimi Pascali Laudis, um, which is one of the famous or improvisations that were written for that church. Um, more impressive than that organ, however, is um, across town at the Church of St. Sulpice, um, where Daniel Roth is organist. That's that's the church that's famously in the Da Vinci Code. Um, uh -huh. um, but that organ did you play, did you play been, on this one? I've played on that one, yeah. Um, but it's not it's not the cathedral, so I didn't list it. Um, that is the original um, Kevaya Cole organ that's been unaltered since it was put in. Um, so that's where the Barker lever was invented. Uh, well, actually, the Barker lever was invented for Saint Denis or for Saint Denis up on the hill. But St. Sulpice still has the original Barker lever in there, five, five manual organ. When it was constructed, it was the largest organ in the world. It was 100 stops. Wow. And that's where Vidor, Charles-Marie Vidor was organist and where he wrote the famous organ symphonies for. And so I managed to schedule a time with Monsieur Roth and he let me have an hour in the, in the gallery at St. Sulpice. And the only reason I was allowed in was because I was a member of the Royal Canadian College of Organists. So that little, that little piece of paper I had actually was was very uh, important in him allowing allowing me to play the organ with no supervision. They just gave me the keys and up I went. And so I played through the Vidor Fifth Symphony and the Sixth Symphony of Vidor. Um, so that's the famous wow. staccato at the end of the fifth. And it's amazing how slow you have to play in that church. It's a cave. It's it's got eight seconds of reverb. And so that Takata, sometimes we hear young organists play it as fast as they can, right? And in that church, it's even then it kind of gets kind of gets muddy. So it's interesting that to play the pieces in those original churches where the composers envisioned them to to realize the actual tempo they should be taken at. 
Okay, to adjust your pace to the uh, the reverb, if I can see the, uh, oh, the acoustic. Yeah, yeah. The, they say that the room is the most important stop on the organ, and if you if you can't compensate for the room, then you're going to have a very hard time as an organist. Yes. I, uh, you made the, uh, a few recordings. I have made a couple. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's more bootlegs out there, but the stuff that's been commercially released is there's a couple, couple, three, four on iTunes. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I found two albums for you on the, yeah. on the Spotify. The oh, the solo one. yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot more that I've collaborated on as a pianist or, or other instrumentalists, but yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think you were, you were discovered, if I can say, at Saint Denis uh, by Kim Raffin. I, I, he, found, he found you uh, as uh, the pianist for uh, El Divo. Kim? Yes. No, El Divo was much later. Uh, so how Kim. how how did he find you? So so in two thousand seven, Kim was the music director at Immaculate Heart in Calgary which then later became St. Dennis. And they were doing a Messiah production okay. and had a string quartet hired, but the string quartet leader said, well, string quartet's great, but there's all these other parts that need to be covered, the wind parts, the brass parts, the, all that. And you really need a continual player, organist to kind of fill out the sound. And so... So this he, is how the... So this he, is how the... Uh, came down to a piano store that I was working at and asked me if I knew any organists. And I said, well, I could probably do it. So that's, that's when that's I met him. That's how your story started. So I'd, I'd been playing at the Anglican church for about a year then. So then I played the Messiah. He said, have you ever played it? And I said, yeah, I've played it a couple times. <laughs> Told him the horror story. And so eventually he, uh, we got together and we did that in December of 2007, which then right. led the then Father Angeline came to offer me the contract to come over and take over the organist position at Immaculate Heart in 2008. Okay. So that's and how we move. I played with Phil a couple years ago was all. Mm. Okay. And then you moved from uh, Immaculate Heart to St. Denis. That's right. Yeah. And uh, what's the story of that uh, organ in St. Denis? It has a very special story, this thing. So that, that organ, it's a digital organ. There was the the gallery just didn't have enough vertical space to put in anything over 10 feet. So even 16 foot pipes wouldn't fit up there. Um, and so we had to um, go with the digital organ for the time. Uh, we so make- this is why, this is why you call it the gallery organ. Well, it's in the gallery <laughs> um, as opposed to the choir organ, which would have a, the, the orc de coeur, right in the, in the French tradition. So um, okay. we did have another smaller organ that we could put up in the, in the sanctuary if needed for, for festivals of that um but the there is provision for that for that space that a pipe organ could be put in um the, the width is long enough that the the longest pipes could be laid down horizontally um so maybe one day they'll do that but they bought the church and then needed an organ and to commission an organ was going to take it could take five years six years ten years from a good reputable organ builder so as an interim instrument they uh, purchased a touring organ from Rogers, Canada. Uh, interestingly, I'd helped design that organ um, when I, I used to work for Rogers um, in, in another lifetime. And so I, I knew this organ very well. And the 
um, sounds on the organ, so the the recordings, the, the samples that they'd used, um, were actually you had, not, not yeah, released you had, in the public. You had an input on that, huh? I, I did, and um, we wanted an organ. We we had lots of English style organs, um, and American style organs, in in the kind of the the roster of their touring instruments, and we wanted something with a little more French accent, and so Rogers was um, given access to record. Um, the organ at the Basilica of Saint Denis, and so that's the first cavaical organ that was ever made. Um, which that that's another story how that instrument came to be. It involves lightning and acts of God and t extensions on the contract, but that organ eventually came to be um, and revolutionized the sound of the French organ. Um, we he he created harmonic flutes, um, which a flute is usually eight feet long to give you the 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 middle C sound, um, but he made the flutes, the, these harmonic stops twice as long, but a hole in the middle to to create a node. So you would have the, the resonance of a note that's twice as big, but the pitch an octave higher. And so you have these harmonic flues that are, that can fill a cathedral with one, with one stop, um, just huge flute sounds, um, very bright and assertive reeds. So the trumpets, the hautbois, all those are very, very French sounding. Um, so they, they were allowed in to record that instrument. And then um, another competing organ company um, also consulted with the church and paid a lot more money. And Rogers actually hadn't finalized their deal to, for an exclusivity contract. And so the other organ company came in, paid more money, and Rogers was told that they couldn't use the sounds anymore. So they'd only been put into one organ as a demo and wow. that, that organ. So it's interesting that the Church of St. Denis in Calgary has sounds that has nobody has from Saint-Denis in Paris. <laughs> yes. And it, it, before it came to live at that church, it was played, it, it lived in, uh, it went on tour to Montreal and was played at Olympic Stadium for the celebration mass for the coronate, or for coronation, the uh beatification of uh, St. Andre. Brother so Andre, okay. Yeah, when they had the big party at Olympic Stadium, at the baseball stadium, um, okay. and the outdoor mass, that was the organ that played. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, on your, your CD, your organ CD, mm -hmm. which is your favorite piece? Uh... Personally, I like your quiet pieces. I like your uh, like your uh, yeah. Um, I like how you you uh, you develop your crescendos. How you get, if I can say, uh, different. Uh, uh, how do you call it? the the, the different selections? Uh, yeah, just just to, to work with the sounds and show off show off what the organ can do. The different yes. instrumentation orchestration. Yes, I mean you have a good uh, you have a good selection there to to show how delicate can the organ can be, mm -hmm. and how spectacular also uh, the, the, it can be. How uh, yeah, and the advantage of that organ too is that it's it's MIDI enabled, and pipe organs are today are MIDI enabled as well. So you can pre-record elsewhere and then push play on a on a great organ, a pipe organ, and it will it will play back for you. Um, but with that capability comes the ability to, to bring in other stops. You could bring in the sound of a choir, or you could bring in a, an orchestral string, string section underneath your, your organ strings. Um, you could put timpani on the pedals if you wanted. So I took advantage of all that capability and, and 
use the yes, organ. Yes, I had the impression that sometimes it was not sounding like an organ, though. No, there's, there's, it's, it's a, the organ is the first synthesizer. I mean, can you imagine the fun Bach had when he could play three, three keyboards and three different orchestras at the same time? Wow, and, wow, wow. And interestingly, the, the concept of, of timpani on the organ is not, um, people have been trying for, and there are organs that actually have timpani drums, tuned, tuned uh, they're, they're more uh, theater style organs. But the organ in the um, Sydney Opera House. Yes. Uh, sorry, no, it's the Town Hall organ in Sydney, not the Opera House. The Town Hall has 64 foot reeds. They're actually 64 feet long, a 64 foot bombard. And you can't hear that. It's, it's too low. But it rattles much like you would expect a timpani roll. And they okay. installed it not to be a sound, but as a sound effect. They wanted when you when you put that on to actually give the listener the impression that they were hearing they were hearing this timpani drum roll, and so okay. that's very the expensive. vibration that go with it. Each of those pipes nowadays would be a quarter of a million dollars for a timpani roll. So I think MIDI's oh, a good, I think MIDI's a good good trade off, and we can just push a button and, and have the timpani roll without having to you know put in a pipe that's sixty four feet long. Imagine how big that church would have to be. Wow! 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 So. I think my favorite one is in Dolce Jubilo. Um, yes. It's, yes. Uh, the organ has great French sounds. Um, and a lot of the stops on that um, Cavaillacol at Saint-Denis were, were recycled from the previous organ built by Clicquot. Um, and Clicquot built the organ, I believe, that is at uh, Saint-Nicolas de Chardonnay. And they okay. built that organ, but in a very French classic style, um, which lends itself well to about one thing um but the organ at saint denis was was re-envisioned so they used the the french classical sounds which would have been um let's say for example the best one of the best examples is actually in, in montreal there's the uh organ at at mcgill there's a french classical organ there that's fantastic or the organ at the palace of versailles in the chapel a very french classical sound um it still has those pipes and he put he used them in the organ so if you pull the right sounds, you can actually play the original Clicquot organ. And so what I did was try to use those those French uh, classical sounds rather than the French romantic sounds um, on the Indulce Jubilo. And so I'm proud of that one because it uses kind of the, the French uh, suite. We have uh, like a duo, the dialogue, the basse trompette, um, the the section with the voix humaine. So those are kind of kind of my favorite. Um, it's probably the most organistic um, classical organ piece on the whole thing. Okay. Now to get a bit more personal, um, uh, what kind of temperament do you think you are? What's what's your uh, the, the, I would do, what would be your favorite composer? My favorite composer. Are you romantic? Are you? Uh... <laughs> um. He, he. I have favorites. I, I guess if I had to want play one piece for the rest of my life, and yes. I could only pick one, I yes. think the one that would keep teaching me things until the end is uh, the Kunst der Fugue, the Art of the Fugue by J.S. Art of the Fugue from Bach. Yeah. yeah. From Bach. Yeah. He takes the fugue and, and, and introduces it at the, at the unison and then at the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And he he modulates the the subject the counter subjects up by by intervals and still makes it work. 
there's even one that's played the same way backwards and forwards. So you can actually flip the music up upside down and it's played the same both ways. Um, it's genius. And well, yes, Bach was no, a genius. Difficult. And when, when when you talk about the organ, Bach is always a great name. It's always a name that comes that that comes back. Yeah, yeah and that one is written specifically for. Um, it can be played on any keyboard instrument, so that's not necessarily organ. Um, but if it were organ, I would probably say it's um, the Klavierübung Book Three, um, which is they kind of. Um, it's box organ mass essentially, um, so it opens with the great the great um, Saint Anne Prelude, and ends with the or sorry ends with the Prelude in E flat and the Saint Anne Fugue, um, and then it has a threefold Kyrie in it. There's a Gloria. He has parts of the Credo um, because it's Lutheran, not Catholic necessarily. There's part of a baptismal covenant, different things that are recited through, but it's all instrumental. And it's um, book four of that Klaviermusik is the uh, Goldberg Variations. So book three is the organ fugue by J.S. Bach. So if there's one organ piece and I could book a collection, I would say it has to be the, the Klaver Uben three, the organ mess. And if I could pick any keyboard in work, I'd have to say the Kunsterfugue. Okay. What temperament do you think Bach is? I'm sorry, say again? What temperament do you think uh, Bach is, uh, has? Um, I'm not really an expert in temperaments. I... I I mean, there, there are four kinds. Four kinds. There's a choleric, the sanguine, melancholic, and phlegmatic. I've, I know of them. I have no idea what really any of that means. Um, but I would say he. I mean, he had 21 children. Um, he married a younger woman. Um, <laughs> he lived in the same area within 20 miles his entire life. He only made one trip outside of that. Mm. Was when he walked to Lubuk to visit Buxtehude, so he's kind of a a home a homebody. Um, yes. I don't think he was looking for a superstar status. He was happy to be the court organist and the church organist. Mm -hmm. uh, he got thrown in jail a couple times. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where he wrote the uh, part of the. Uh, so that partitas. Uh, the uh, I believe it was the the Prelude and Fugue, the the Old Testament, the forty eight. Um, he he wanted to go on a trip, and the the pastor at his church told him he couldn't. And because he was employed by the town, um, he decided mm -hmm. he was going on a trip anyway, and they met him and threw him in jail instead. So he got to spend some time and think about, you know, what was he really a musician who was a, who was indentured to the town or was he a free man? And I think it, it was the former. Um, but he, he used what he could. He wrote, he wrote great music, but um, I mean, part of, part of his contract um, when he was at the Thomas Kirk in Leipzig, Um, he had a beautiful house. He was teaching at the school. He was also paid in beer. Um, that was part of his contract. He got money and beer. So I think mm -hmm. he was just happy with his family, with a good time, writing some great music that was ahead of its time. But I don't think he had aspirations to take over the world. It just kind of happened that he was the greatest composer that's ever lived. And I don't think he really at the time thought that. No, no, he was not uh, too curious Uh, in the sense that he, he was not searching for, for change in his in his life all the time, he was very curious music, musically, but uh, uh, his life was very settled. Uh, he did he did like uh, friendship with the Café Zimmerman. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm asking you this question because. Uh, 
your, uh, you know, your friends are going to be the same kind of personality that as yours, your close friends. Well, then I must be pretty outgoing and nonchalant because well, I, I will say this. I don't get mad. No, nothing gets me angry until it does. Then watch out. I'll, I'll start throwing things. But it takes zero to 99 is pretty tame. And then 100 is, is terrifying. Um, <laughs> very, very few people have seen that. Um, mm. I run my orchestra rehearsals like they're my friends, not like they're my employees. Um, so you're uh, very pragmatic. I I use people's first names. I don't say second oboe. I don't say trumpets. I say, you know, uh, John, uh, Andrea, I need this. Rather, than, I don't try to be diplomatic for the sake of diplomatic. I just, I, I say what I need to get, say and get it done and move on with things. Um, so okay. I, I certainly am pragmatic, not not uh, politically correct for the, for the point of being politically correct, but I am friendly. I think I'm a nice person not because I want to be seen as that because that's how I was raised. And that's, I just think that's the easiest way to way to get along with people. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, I'm asking you this because you know, your, your, uh, your, your favorite composer is going to be like your friends. You know, you're the, I mean, there's, there's two kinds of favorite composer that you may have. Mm -hmm. Okay. The one that looks, that has a personality like yours, Okay, in, uh, in that case, it seems to be Bach. Huh? And the one that uh, would uh, have a personality like uh, your uh, potential wife, someone that, would be, some, <laughs> someone that would be complimentary. Right. <laughs> someone that will take you out of your comfort zone and uh, that make you uh, appreciate, if I can say, other kind of uh, personality. I suppose. I'd say my second favorite composer is Johannes Brahms, but he's very much like Bach. <laughs> He's very kind of subdued and didn't travel, and he. Uh, yeah. Although he did kind of have a relationship with Clara Schumann that wasn't really above board, but. <laughs> but uh, I mean, Bach Bach had his younger wife too, and so I mean, yes, I kind of um, I mean, usually, Bach, usually pragmatic people get along well with uh, colorics. You know they they're searching they're searching uh, the, the 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 fiery kind of temperament if I can say that uh, yeah. that is complimentary. Uh, it can be also the the, the kind of a funny kind of uh, type of a sanguine or a, the kind of a you know uh, merciful uh, deep you know uh, reserved kind of the, the, the uh, of the melancholic. But uh, this, um, I'm just realizing I don't know my composer's life stories well enough. I only know like five of them very, very well, and the rest are kind of, you know, the music. So I'm gonna have to go find out a little yeah, more about. Yeah, this yeah, 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 yeah. You'd be surprised. I, I, I research the ones that I like that, are, that I like to play. I, I'm, I, I learn more of them about them as I as I perform their music. But, but uh, I guess I'm still still a baby when it comes to exploring my repertoire. Yes. Uh, you're a good friend of Kim, I think. Kim and you yeah. are. Uh, he he's two uh, offices down. Yes. Yeah. He's not. It's not just business relationship. No, it's uh, it's uh, there's a there's a friendship in there. No? There is absolutely. When you, uh, have, you have to it, be in a church at two in the morning on, on a 
Easter morning. It's it's more than just work. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Kim is a, is a melancholic kind of a temperament. I like I said. I don't know really any of the definitions. So, yeah. So, but you don't seem to be the same type. You see, uh, you, you, you don't. Uh, Kim is is on. You know. Uh, He's on the romantic side. Uh, he's very with his Schubert, uh, which is his, uh, his favorite composer. Oh yeah, uh, Kim loves Schubert. Well, Kim's a singer, so that makes sense. I mean, Schubert was a songwriter. Yes, yeah. but uh, Schubert corresponds also to his personality. Yes, yeah. Although Schubert died without a penny to his name, and I don't think that'll be Kim's case. No, Kim is a good <laughs> uh, businessman. We have to give him that. Yes. He will always come back on his feet and always, uh, yes. Schubert, Schubert was the ultimate couch surfer, and you think he died when he was 31. So, mm, yeah. Just, just living yeah. off friends and loans and whatever he could get. So, I mean, what uh, what are the, 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 how would you describe the feelings that you get when you play your favorite piece on the organ? I mean, to be an organist is, must be very, very difficult. I mean, you have so many sounds coming out of there, uh, discreet and, and very loud. How how can you play this instrument without being dis distracted by your own sound? <laughs> well, I, I suppose being an organist, a you need to be a good keyboardist first. No one starts on the organ. You start on the on a on a pressure sensitive keyboard instrument like a piano or the harpsichord. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, the organ really is an orchestra at your disposal. Um, yes. If you just let everybody play all the time, it's just, it's insanity. Um, it, I mean, Richard Strauss is a good thing, but you can't have everything loud all the time. It's, there's, it's gotta be, gotta be some things, right? Mm -hmm. the, a variation. So I think being a good organist actually means being a good register, so the registration um, of the organ. So it means being, being a good orchestrator. Um, mm -hmm. A good organist is a good conductor. Um, yes. One that knows when enough is enough and when you need more, but when to put that away. Mm. Um, but how to play and not be distracted. Um, you know, the organ is called the king of instruments. It's, it's said to be one of the most difficult um, to play. I think that's just because there's so much there. There's so much to see. There's so many keyboards and all the stops and the pedals. Um, but once you can play it, I mean, those those are just part of the beast. Um, I Bach famously said that the organ is the easiest instrument. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's the bellows that do all the work. There's mm. the pipes. There's one for each one. If it's not in tune, it's not your fault. Um, literally you just, you push the button and the organ does the job. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. So it is yes. very mechanical like that where mm. um, nothing you can do other than a little bit of touch response on a, on a tractor type organ, but nothing you, your technique is either on or off at the right time. That's all there is. There's yes. um, where a great violinist or a great cellist, or even a, an oboist, a horn player, for example, hmm. everything they do, um, what they had for dinner the night before, how much water they've drank today is going to influence their sound hmm. for better or worse. An organist hmm. can show up, you know, having, having not slept and hung over and the organ will still make them sound fantastic as long mm. as they can push the buttons at the right time. 
you don't need to be in good physical shape or good condition or an athlete to play the organ where other other instruments it's it's physically exhausting so there, there are two different ways it, it is difficult because of all the orchestration and all the there's so much in front of you so many, so many, things, so many things going on at the same time yes right Yes. And, and knowing where you are and, and having the different instruments. I mean, you've got accompaniment in one hand and a solo in the other. But, I mean, once that's out of the way, uh, like Bach said, after you've got that figured out, it's really just pushing the right button at the right time and the organ does the work. I mean, with these modern organs, you don't have to pull the stops uh, manually uh, by yourself. You can, you can program all these things, no? Yeah, I mean, th that's been a thing since... Well, even even in the 1850s, they had um, they had combination systems like that, where you could pre pre-program things, and then with the flick of a switch, you could you could activate them. Um, the big French organs, like at Notre Dame and Saint Sulpice, each each keyboard has its own wind chest, so the pipes that you play on that keyboard are on its own reservoir of air, and the organ builders then split the reservoir into two. So you had the grand jeu, which is the the fonds the uh, like the the flutes, the the uh, the diapasons, the mantra of the organ, those would be on one, and those would be up to say maybe a, a two foot range, and then you had the the jeu de hanche, which is the, the 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 reed work and the the mixtures and the sparkles. So you had you had the the kind of underpinning the the, the foundation sounds of the organ, and then you had the sparkle side, and with your feet you had activations to turn each of those wind chests on or off so you could you could have the keyboard one just the just the foundations on and you could have already pre-programmed what reads you wanted to come on and just by a flick of a foot you could turn those reads on which so is it's, great. it's been in the work for a long time but now that we have electric action so mm. really since we've had electricity into the organs which would be well every organ nowadays has it but um, okay. They have a combination system. So that's like the little white buttons that are about the size of a dime underneath mm. each of the keyboards. So you mm. can just recall um, presets okay. at, at a moment's notice, which which means that the repertoire for the organ now is just complex beyond belief. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I, we you can accomplish something you're great. I about. had, I had. I mean, every organ I've ever played has, has had that. I mean, with the exceptions of some of the older organs, right? But um, I still think the mark of a, of a good organist is can you do it without those those are playing aids but you should be able to do it in case that fails so mm. i am known for actually not not using those very much um, okay hardly ever actually um okay maybe in service you know if i was to play you know, we're going to play mass eight here's curie hit the button because that's what i want and off we go it just presets them for me but as we're going i'll actually pull the stops on rather than than I forget what's on number three. I forget what's on number four. But if I grab a handful of stops, I know what it is. And I'd rather push them off myself at the right time. <laughs> I, I'm a forgetful person. And you don't know. If you've ever seen an organist's music, um, a lot of them, they, they put little sticky notes. Like like you see this pink note back here. Yes. So they have these little notes with a sticky on them. And you'll you'll rip off a little piece that's maybe the mm -hmm. size of a, of a nickel. And you'll write a, a number on it. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe each one of these corresponds to a different keyboard on the organ. And so you'll see numbers and with circles around them and squares around them. This is this code for organists. Um, but if you're relying on that combination system, every time you perform on a new organ, you've got to go through and reset program that organ for the piece that you're playing. 
and I find sometimes we're playing by numbers rather than listening to the organ and listening to what sound we want. But it's it's useful, especially if if you're playing a new instrument and just need to get something programmed in a hurry. But uh, I still prefer to do it do it by hand. Yes, because I'm forgetful. So the organ is the would be the the, the door to conducting. Uh, the piano, the piano, and the organ would be the door to conducting, since you there's many I, I things going on at the same time. I think that the top two instrumentalists that become conductors are violinists and, and organists. Okay. Yeah, uh, violinists just because they they can command a string section. Um, they know. In, I mean, the orchestra is eighty percent strings. So if you're if you're an excellent violinist, you can talk to those people very efficiently. <laughs> You, you can say the right word at the right time and they'll do exactly what you want. Um, okay. And an organist um, becomes an orchestrator. Um, so we have different strengths, but uh, okay. but I won't say very few, but most pianists are worried about their, their playing career and don't have time to become a conductor. Or if they do, they're conducting mostly piano concerto works. So stuff from the piano, but not really becoming an orchestral conductor, an opera conductor. What has been your favorite concert? That I've conducted? Yes. Um, I did attend your violin, the Beethoven oh, that, violin that concerto. That was a good concert, the Beethoven violin concerto. That was a, that was a good show. Um, what did we play? We played the high. It was funny before. to see uh, the uh, the soloist practicing all this time, if I can say it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that was a great concert. Um, probably musically one of the best we've ever done. Um, we were pretty in sync. The uh, maybe the best programmed concert that I've ever done was uh, we played um, a horn concerto by Weber, or not horn, uh, bassoon concerto by Weber, uh, a horn piece, a concert stuck for the horn, and then the second half was the Great C Major Symphony by Franz Schubert, um, and that that was one of my favorite concerts. Um, it was way more than we ever should have bitten off in terms of program length. It was just a big show, but uh, all came out well. And, uh, and uh, the recordings are great. Also the, did... the, the second concert we ever did was the uh, new world symphony. And I mean, the orchestra played very, very well for that show, despite being our second concert ever. So your Schubert was your first, the first concert. Yes. No, no, that was in our first season, though. It was the, our season finale. First concert was a hodgepodge of um, shorter pieces, um, greatest hits, and Fifth Symphony of Beethoven. Every orchestra that starts a, starts in their very first concert should probably play the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven, just in case you go bankrupt and you never get to play it. <laughs> well, yes, yes. Uh, it's uh, Who doesn't know the Fifth? Uh. Well, and it's... Uh, of the nine symphonies, it's the most difficult to conduct and the most difficult to play. People, people oh, yes. it's famous, but for the players, that that second movement and the third movement, that cello part, oh my goodness, it's the excerpts for that for the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony are just difficult. Uh, in terms of orchestration, too, it was the first time that the trombones had ever played in something called a symphony. Mm -hmm. Mozart had used them in his opera overtures, but they never trombones had never made their way into a symphony at that point. And the uh, when Beethoven decided he was going to have trombones, did he ever use them? Um, there's a uh, you're in C major in the, in the finale, and the trumpets 
and the horns play on a diatonic series. So they have C, E, G. Um, and if they go high enough, then they start to get the notes. But the F is very, very out of tune. So that's the F on the top line of the treble clef. And the horns just can't reach there. Um, mm. Plus the horns were in C, so they didn't have that note. And so there's that big famous F major chord in, in the finale of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And Beethoven just says, well, the trumpets can't play it. It's too high for the horns. Let's give it to the trombones. So the alto trombone, which looks like a, a mini mini trombone um, that has a little bit higher range, uh, it is asked to play in this F major chord. It's playing in unison with the clarinet and the second flute on the top line of the treble clef, a trombone. Mm. And so <laughs> Beethoven, I've got friends who who play the trombone, and so they said, well, that's that's if you're going to play it, Beethoven Symphony, that's the one we want to play because it's it's just out of left field that the trombone just has to play this insanely difficult part. Um, it's the highest note that's written in any classical literature for the trombone, and it's the first time it ever came in. I think after that, the composers realized maybe the trombonists wanted to kill them, and so they wrote it in a realistic range. It's also the first time we see piccolo in a symphony orchestra and the contrabassoon, so he added a lot of new instruments um, in that symphony, so it's a real tour de force for the orchestra, and it's fun to play. Okay. Um, what piece do you think uh, uh, did had the greatest effect on your public in the in your concert? Oh, the greatest effect on the public. What 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 piece did you get the best review? Oh, I mean the the Beethoven's Violin Concerto was 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 very well received um it's it's first of all it's not it's not a piece that someone who has been conducting as short a time as i have um tends to program it's one of those um top of the mountain pieces um a vi and secondly finding a violinist that can play it well not just play the notes it, i mean it, it If you're not, if you're just playing the notes, such as scales and arpeggios, but to 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 take that piece and make it make sense as a musical whole requires a great artist. So to find an orchestra that will play it well yes. Yes. and a violinist that can actually handle it, um, that's first of all two things. And um, I guess I mean you were there at the concert. The the, the orchestra did exactly what I asked and. The, the soloist and I were really just having a conversation. So absolutely yeah. yes, yeah, it was it beautiful. Was yeah, it was fantastic. Absolutely yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this interview, Carlos. Well, you're very welcome. I hope, hope you have that, usable uh, pets. <laughs> yes, uh, I hope that uh, our listeners will uh, appreciate the man with the stick. The dude with the stick. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, without musicians, it's just a guy with a, a pencil or a knitting needle, right? So exactly. You can wait yes. All you yes. want. If no music comes out, it doesn't do you much good. I mean, uh, it's fantastic. All your contacts and all the, your work uh, uh, to be to succeed, if I say, to find all these artists to join you, if I say, with the orchestra in these concertos. Uh, uh, it's it's. It's a, it, it, you have great connections. You have uh, you, you have enlarged, if I can see your contacts. 
and uh, you have a great effect on the population. Uh, I'm glad that you're uh, that you're saying that the classical music is still alive and healthy today. It is. It just needs. It just needs some of the some of the barriers taken away, the barriers of, of elitism and cost and class. People, yes. people from all walks of life, no matter how much they make, what color their skin is, where they live, once they get an opportunity to, to, to have access and appreciate the education that goes along with it. Why is this important music? Once they get those two things, it's, it's, it's very popular. But we just need to provide that for people. Carlos Fogin, thank you so much. Thank you, Father. Okay. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.